turn with me to Matthew 13. We started looking at this passage last week. We got through most of it. We'll finish it up. We'll review some and then finish it up and then move on in the chapter today. Uh, but as I told you last week, Matthew 13 marks a new division in Matthew's gospel. Uh, it very clearly begins a new train of thought, a new aspect of Jesus' ministry. Uh, as we come to this chapter, uh, the cross is looming because the we were told back in chapter 12 that the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. So uh, they are fully rejecting him. And so the question is, if Jesus came to offer the kingdom of Israel and establish its rule and rule it as prophesied in Scripture and they refused him and his kingdom, what then is going to happen in the present time? What happens? Uh, what's the message in the mission of the disciples and all the believers? What's, what's going on in this period of time between then and now? And those are the questions that he answers in chapter 13. Uh, this is the period between his ascension back to heaven and his second coming is a period that theologians have called the parenthesis. Some have called it the interim period. Uh, Jesus refers to it as the mysteries of the kingdom. And uh, it's a period not seen in the Old Testament. It was hidden in time past. They, didn't, uh, they had no idea what it would be like. And so in Matthew 13, you have a series of eight parables from verse 1 all the way to verse 52. And in those parables, Jesus describes this interim period. And it's this parenthesis, as it were, that we live in. And uh, it, he is ruling his subjects on earth, but he's ruling in absentia. Uh, his glorified physical form is absent. So the disciples needed to have an understanding of this period as they set out to evangelize, because after he's gone back to heaven, they're going to be the foundational elements of this parenthesis, this uh, period that we know today as the church age. And uh, they needed to know what it would be like, what they were to do. And this unique church age, this mystery, was defined for us rather explicitly. Paul in Ephesians 3, 4 to 6, refers to the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it was now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, the mystery of this age is that Jew and Gentile would constitute a new body, a new identity that was previously unknown. And that is the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's made up of both Jews and Gentiles. That was not seen in the Old Testament. That was hidden from them. And we said there's four points in this. We looked at the first three. I'll just run through them quickly. Verses, there was first, we saw the place, verses 1 and 2. It says, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. Uh, the public curiosity was still very high about Jesus. In spite of their leader's rejection of him, there were many people who were interested in him. He fascinated people, and they just mobbed him. So he climbs on this boat, gets it a little offshore, and he sits down on it and begins to teach them as they stand on the shore. 
And he, we see the plan. Verse 3, he spoke many things to them in parables. And so he teaches them, and what he taught them, they didn't understand at all. Uh, and that was his plan. Since they wouldn't listen to him when he spoke clearly and understandably, he will now speak so that they can't understand him. In fact, from here on out, all he did was teach in parables. Uh, if you look down to verse 34, it says, All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. And he was not speaking to them without a parable. Uh, so they wouldn't listen when he spoke in plain terms. So now he spoke in terms they couldn't understand. Now, what is a parable? He said it's uh, derived from a verb that means to throw alongside, to put alongside. So it means to put something alongside something else so that a comparison can be made. And basically that's what it means. It's a comparison or an illustration. A spiritual truth or moral truth is expressed by laying it alongside, so to speak, a physical example that could be more easily understood. And so here Jesus teaches profound spiritual lessons about a period of time that no one ever knew about before. And he does it in the simplest terminology so that those whom he wishes to understand can understand it very easily. And those that he does not intend for them to understand will not understand it. Now, why he, I told you last time about why parables are effective teaching tools. I gave you four reasons. One, they make truth concrete. We said they make, second, they make truth memorable. Third, they make truth interesting. And fourth, they make truth personally discoverable. So parables are a marvelous form of teaching. However, in these particular parables, the truth is not made clear because the basic story tells nothing but the literal account without presenting the moral or spiritual truth. It was only to his disciples that Jesus explained what the soil, the, the seed, the thorns, and the other figures represent. Uh, and, and an unexplained parable, I said, was nothing but an impossible riddle so that the meaning could only be guessed at. And then so we read the parable, the sower, verses 3 to 9, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell beside the road, the birds came and ate them up, and others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. Immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and were yielding a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now this was largely, because it was largely an agricultural society, uh, everyone understood the sowing of seed. They understood what was involved in that. And they would have been very familiar with a man going up and down the furrows of a plowed field, sowing seed. He would scatter the seed into the furrows. He would do it in ordered steps in a straight line. And when he reached the end of the line, he would turn around, start the other direction, never miss a step and continue throwing the seed. And that was how the seed was sown by broadcasting, throwing the seed by hand. And as he threw that, Jesus says there's four kinds of soil on which that seed will fall. The first is the soil beside the road. Um, the term road here refers primarily, as we said, to those narrow paths that separated one field from another. They were usually only three, five, six feet wide. That was it. And uh, farmers used the paths to walk between the fields. Travelers walked on them and as they went from one part of the country to another. And over time, as the farmer and others used those paths, the dirt would be packed down, 
hard. It was never turned over. It was never loosened. And because of all the continual pounding underfoot, the dryness of that part of the world, it would become very compacted to the point it was very hard. And when the farmer came along and threw the seed and it went beyond the furrow and landed on that hard surface, it would not penetrate the ground. So it would lay there on top of the dirt and the birds would come and eat it. That's the soil on the side of the road. And then in verse 5, we come to the rocky ground. It says that some of the seed fell in the rocky places where they didn't have much soil. That doesn't refer to loose rocks. The, the farmer would have removed those. Uh, rather, this is uh, referring to an underlying layer of rock just below the surface. And so right beneath the soil is this hard rock bed. And as the seed falls in and begins to germinate and tries to shoot its roots down, the roots hit the rock bed. And they have nowhere to go. And that soil that is there enables them to spring up. And the rest of the verse says immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. Uh, when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Verse 7 introduces us to the thorny, thorny soil. I said last time you might understand it better in terms of briars. Uh, the, the word refers to any type of bush or shrubbery that has numerous sharp thorns. Uh, and it says the thorns came up and choked them out. Uh, briars were native, natural to the soil. They belong in that soil. And so uh, the briars just dominate and strangle and grow up fast and choke out the grain. There's not enough room for both the thorns and the briars, I mean the thorns and the grain, to share the nutrients of that soil so the good seed dies. And finally in verse 8 is the good soil. And others fell on the good soil, were yielding a crop, some 100 fold, some 60, some 30. And as I told you last time, what that means is that of 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold, is that the seed produces 160 or 30 times the amount of harvested grain seeds in comparison to the amount of seed that was planted. And in biblical times, the average crop ratio was less than 1 to 8. And uh, a good crop that was tenfold, 10 times as many, was a great crop back then. So Jesus is talking about yields that are truly phenomenal. And so the parable's then very simple. And finally, in verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, if you can understand this, then understand it. If you can get the message, get the message, because it's an important message. So who can hear and understand? Was well, the people who believe in the king, those who are redeemed, who are in the kingdom. Uh, because if you're in the kingdom, the king promises to explain to you the meaning of this. Uh, the benefit of being a Christian is that you get the resident truth teacher, the Holy Spirit, abiding in you so that you can understand God's word. If you have the Holy God, the Holy Spirit guiding you to the truth as you study the word, you have him. So his teaching in parables obviously set off a firestorm among his listeners because suddenly they found themselves unable to understand what he meant when he taught them. And that brings us then to where we stopped last time at the next section, which is Jesus' explanation of his purpose. Uh, his purpose, to reveal and to conceal. Let's start reading in verse 10. Go down through verse 17. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, 
You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. After Jesus' statement in verse 9, he who has ears let him hear, that obviously stirred up some of his listeners because they realized they had no idea at all what he meant. And the disciples obviously wanted the crowd to understand Jesus because they're his ambassadors. They've been sent out to proclaim the message of the kingdom. So they obviously want the people to understand what he means. So they ask him in verse 10, why do you speak to them in parables? And at this point, Jesus gives them a twofold reason for his speaking in parables. One, to reveal meaning to those who receive him. And two, to conceal meaning from those who do not. And he says in verse 11, to you, that is to those who believe in him, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, that is those who do not believe in him, it has not been given. Now we've already talked about the terms mysteries and the kingdom of heaven, so I won't repeat everything I already said about them. But I will remind you that in scripture, a mystery refers to the revelation of something previously hidden and unknown. New Testament mysteries are therefore revelations of uh, revelations and explanations of divine truths that were not revealed to saints under the old covenant. And the kingdom of heaven is a term that has several aspects because it goes on through time and eternity. Uh, it was mediated through his chosen people, the patriarchs, the kings, the prophets, the nation of Israel under the old covenant. When Christ was here on earth, he was God's unique mediator, uh, the divine human instrument of rule, who in his own right deserved to establish and reign over God's earthly kingdom. But when he was rejected, God continued his rule through those who belong to Christ, who are empowered by his indwelling Holy Spirit. So from Pentecost onward, forward, until Christ returns, believers are God's mediatorial rulers of his kingdom on earth. Uh, and there together, those believers form the body of Christ known as the church. Thus, the church is the presently the, the form of the kingdom of heaven on earth. It's not exactly the same, but it's that's the best way I can put it. Okay? Okay. Uh, and then expanding on the truth that his parables were given to reveal and conceal, Jesus continues in verse 12 by saying, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Now the term whoever there refers to those who believe, uh, to those who've been sovereignly given the gift of eternal life received by trust in Jesus Christ. They are the true citizens of the kingdom who've received the king. And whoever accepts salvation from God, to, more, to him more shall be given. In other words, the person who accepts the true light will receive 
still further light as he grows in obedience and maturity in the Lord. And that understanding and light will grow so that the believer has an abundance. But by way of contrast, the fate of the unbeliever is just the opposite. Because of his unbelief, he does not have salvation, and therefore even what limited light of God's truth he has shall be taken away from him. Uh, we've talked about this before. I'm, I know you've wondered why some people who've been exposed to all kinds of biblical truth, either by being raised in a faithful Christian home or attending a sound Bible teaching church, they've heard the gospel presented many times and yet they just don't get it. And they reject Christ and they turn away from him and they refuse to listen to the truth. And eventually, as we have seen before in Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, God judicially blinds them so that they can never repent and be saved. Uh, he completely takes away the light from them. They may be sitting in a church that is filled with the light of the gospel, but they're spiritually blind, so it's all darkness to them. That was the situation in Israel when Jesus was here. Uh, many thousands of people heard him teach. They saw him perform miraculous signs as evidence of his divine messiahship. But most of them did not recognize him as Lord or receive him as Savior. They were exposed to God incarnate. And yet they rejected him either by direct opposition or by indifferent neglect. They said no to the king. And because they refused to receive the divine light that shone on them, they drifted deeper and deeper into spiritual darkness. No group of people ever had more truth about God revealed to them than did the Jews. They were called to be God's people. They were given his promises, his covenants, his laws, his immeasurable blessings. They were even sent God's only son as one of their own to teach them, heal, comfort, redeem, deliver them. But they would not have him to rule over them. And because they rejected God's perfect light, even the light they had went out. All people, all people are either progressing or regressing spiritually. No person remains static in his or her relationship to God. The longer a person knows and is faithful to Christ, the more the Lord is faithful to reveal his truth and power. The longer a person rejects the knowledge of God that he or she has, whether much or little, the less of God's truth he will understand. With willful human rejection leads to divine judicial rejection. When a person says no to God, God says no to that person. God confirms people in their stubbornness and blinds them with their own chains of unbelief. And so Jesus explains in verse 13 why he spoke in parables to those who rejected him. He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. They've intentionally closed their eyes and ears to God and refused to understand. How do we know their failure to see and hear and understand was intentional? Because he tells us that in verses 14 and 15. Look at them. He's quoting Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 here. Isaiah wrote during a time of sweeping judgment on Judah. They were 
on the verge of captivity by Babylon as a part of God's judgment, but they refused to turn to him for mercy and help. And so here's what he says. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. You see that there in verse 15? They closed their eyes and ears and hearts deliberately and intentionally. The first fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy came in the judgment of the Babylonian captivity. The second fulfillment was accomplished as Israel once again turned her back on their Messiah and faced the judgment of centuries of darkness and despair. <coughs> Jesus' parables were a similar form of judgment on unbelief. Those who would not accept his clear and simple teachings, such as those in the Sermon on the Mount, not only would not be able to understand his deeper teachings, but would lose the benefit of the teaching and the miraculous witness that had been given. We find a similar kind of judgment on unbelievers that takes place in the New Testament. It's in the gift of languages. I mentioned this already last week. Uh, Paul quoted Isaiah 28:11 and said, In the law it is written, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Tongues, which were real languages, not babbling, uh, were manifested in an astonishing and dramatic way on the day of Pentecost, and they continued to be manifested from time to time during the apostolic age as a form of testimony against those who refused to believe. The Lord first gave his truth to Israel in simple, clear teaching, and when that was ignored, he spoke to them in parables, which without an explanation was nothing more than meaningless riddles. And finally, he spoke in unintelligible languages that could, only, could not be understood at all without translation. But in contrast to those who refused to believe, in verse 16, look what Jesus says. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. When people choose to believe God's word and trust in his grace, he gives them salvation and more and more truth in which to walk and to worship. Believers can understand even the deep things of God's word because they have them written in the New Testament and illuminated by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now remember, Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. And a part of his ministry was to give an understanding of his word to those who trusted in him. In his account of this occasion, Mark says Jesus was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. He taught the crowd in parables, but he explained to them to those who believed in him. And after his resurrection, Luke tells us that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
these men were to be his apostles. So he opened their minds so they could understand the Old Testament scriptures and all their prophecies about him. And that's significant because verse 17 says, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Not even the most faithful and enlightened saints of the Old Testament were given the insights that the apostles and every believer since them <coughs> has been given the privilege of knowing. <coughs> we understand the Old Testament prophecies about Messiah because both his first and second comings and the necessity of him dying on the cross to redeem sinners. Turn over to 1 Peter 1. For a moment. First Peter 1. And we'll read verses 10 to 12. Think about this tremendous privilege that we have been given. Here's what Peter writes. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things, which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, even the angels wish they understood all the truths of salvation that you and I understand because we've experienced it. They know the facts, but they're sinless creatures who have never experienced salvation. And they long to understand the depths of grace that are poured out on sinners. They cannot comprehend the overwhelming sense of gratitude for God's grace that has been poured out on us in Jesus Christ. But we know and understand these truths because we're sinners who've been redeemed. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us and teaching us and leading us to understand these truths. So after telling them these truths, Jesus then interprets the parable for them. And that brings us to verse 18. But before we start, let me stop and pause and ask if there's any questions or comments at this point. Yes. In verse 17, he talks about many prophets righteous men he's he's talking about it, it's a, like a synonym for the prophets uh, the men who and and men who may not have been a specifically a prophet but followed the prophets the sons of the prophets like Elijah was the prophet they had the sons of the prophets uh, who were their disciples and uh, uh, and they they don't mean righteous that they were pure and godless, but righteous in the sense that they were obedient to the law and to uh, and and recognized there was a coming Messiah that they needed to Thank you, believe in. Many people might think that righteous? No, no way. Yeah. No. Yeah. Janetta? I was thinking that New Testament says righteous a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it refers to a lot as being righteous. There is nothing in the Old Testament that you would ever look at and go, oh, Lot was a righteous man. No. But 
thank thank the Lord for the New Testament to reveal that to us. <laughs> okay, now we get started. And this may sound familiar because, as you know, Steve just went through this stuff. And this is where you get to decide whether he did a better job with it than I did. So. Okay? Is that a great test? Yeah. <laughs> okay, verse 18 to 23. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one whose seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown in the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. Now, we studied verses three through nine, in which Jesus told this parable to the crowd. But as he said, only those who are members of his kingdom can understand the parable. So to the rest of the, his listeners, this parable was just an impossible riddle. And Jesus intended it to be so. Because of the nation's rejection of him, he's no longer focused on teaching plainly so that everyone could understand. He's now focused on teaching in parables. <clears throat> so only his true followers could understand. And even then, he would have them to explain to them so that they would understand completely. And so now, beginning, starting in verse 18, he explains the meaning of this parable. Verse 9 says, he who has ears, let him hear. Verse 16 says, blessed are your ears because they hear. So verse 18 begins by saying, hear the parable of the sower. In other words, you guys are my true followers, so you're able to hear and understand. Here's what this parable means. Listen to its meaning. He wants them to get the spiritual message, the deeper connotation. So here comes the interpretation. <clears throat> First, we have to ask ourselves a question in this, at this point because it's so obvious. Who is the sower? Well, Jesus doesn't identify who he is in this parable. But immediately after explaining this parable to the disciples, he gave them another parable in verses 24 to 30 about the wheat and the tares. And in verse 36, the disciples told him, explained us the parable of the tares in the field. And verse 37, he answered and said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So I think it's rather obvious that the sower of this parable of the soils is also the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Christ is the original sower. He's the one who first puts the seed in the soil. So that brings us to the next question. What is the seed? And verse 19 says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's God's revelation. In Luke 8, 11, which is a parallel passage, uh, giving the same parable, it says the seed is the word of, the go of God. So it is the message about the king and his kingdom. It is the good news of entrance into the kingdom by grace through faith. It is the gospel. But understand this. In a broader sense, anyone who preaches or testifies to the gospel is a sower who sows Christ's word on his behalf. If you repeat the message of Jesus Christ, you become a sower. If I repeat the message of Jesus Christ, I become a sower. Mark 4, 14, it says, The sower sows the word. 
So anyone who sows the word becomes a sower. Jesus was the first sower, and we who follow by giving his message are also sowers. Now let me make an important point here. You know, seed, just in its natural sense, can be created uh, uh, by any human being. If you wanted to plant a garden, you lost the seed so that you wanted to grow, you, could, you, they, you couldn't create any kind of seed. Well, I should have said, I said you can. You cannot be created by any human being. Uh, you, if you lose the seeds that you bought at the hardware store to plant, you couldn't say, well, let me just go in my kitchen and whip up a new batch of seeds. You can't go to the local biology lab and have the scientists there produce some seeds for you. Now, those scientists might modify real seeds for you into GMO seeds. Yeah, uh, the genetically modified organism. Uh, they might modify those seeds, but they can't produce original seed. No, if we lost a seed, we could never cause things to grow. We're dependent on God to grow the plants which produce more seed. God originally created seed, and seed reproduces itself. We can't create it, and the same is true of the seed of the Word of God. God does not call on us to create our own message, folks. We're not to produce a new supply of information. Just as only God creates seeds that reproduce themselves, only God creates the word of the gospel that brings the life of his son to a believer. The work of Christ's witnesses is not to manufacture a message to create a synthetic seed or to modify the seed given to them but to sow God's revelation by proclaiming it exactly as he has given it. We're not to produce a GMO version of the gospel. So then we are utterly dependent upon the divine revelation of the gospel as much as we are dependent on God creating natural seed which reproduces itself and brings us the bread and the fruit that we eat. So the seed is the word of God about which, about how to become a member of his kingdom. And let me add a footnote. The Bible is the written word, but Jesus Christ is the living word who gives it life. It's as if the Bible is the husk and the living Christ is the seed kernel within the husk. Uh, so initially it's Christ sowing the word of God containing, containing the seed which is himself, He's both the sower and the seed. We're the sowers who sow the seed. The husk is the written word of God, and in it we find it contains the life of the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. So the parable then is about this. It's about preaching the gospel about the king and his kingdom, telling people that Jesus is the king, that he's come to bring a kingdom, telling them what the king is like, and telling them how to get into his kingdom, telling people what his kingdom is like, and what it promises them in life and death and eternity. So we're talking about preaching. But then we come to the soils, and this is the main point of the parable. It's about how people will respond to the gospel. When it's preached, how will they respond? And we've seen that there's four kinds of soil. Now understand this. this in this parable, all the soils are basically the same. It's the this dirt that if given the right conditions could support the growth of crops. 
The issue is the conditions which affect the dirt's ability to grow crops. Some is hard, some has rock below it, some has weeds and briars in it, and some is soft and deep. So the issue is not specifically the soil itself, the issue is what has influenced the soil, the condition that the soil is in. It is to say then that all men could receive the seed. All soil could receive the seed if it was broken up, if the rocky underlayment was gone, or if it was cleared of thorns and thistles. The issue then is this, this is the, and here's the key to the parable. The result of hearing the gospel in the life of an individual depends upon the condition of that person's heart. That's what Jesus is teaching. The result of the preaching of the gospel will depend upon the condition of the heart of the hearer. So now we know that the soil refers to the heart because it tells us that in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Heart is the same as the soil. You see, the issue is the condition of the heart. And Jesus is saying to these disciples who at this point are saying, Lord, what's going to happen? You've been blasphemed. You've been rejected. The kingdom can't come. All is lost. What's going to happen now? And he says, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go out just like I did, and you're going to sow. And you're going to sow the seed, which is the word of God, and you're going to preach the same message about the same king and the same kingdom. But Lord, what's going to happen? Oh, lots of things are going to happen but it's going to depend upon the condition of the heart of the hearer. And I think the basic point of the parable is to encourage the apostles that there will be hard soil. You've got to know that or you could get really disillusioned. And there will be rocky soil and there will be briar-filled soil, but there will also be rich, good soil that will bring forth 30, 60, 100-fold. It's an encouraging parable. It's a parable to help them approach the ministry with excitement, anticipation that God is going to produce the results. Now notice that the mark of salvation in the souls is what? Fruit. And only one out of the four demonstrates it. That's a very important point. You see, salvation is observed by fruit. Not by foliage, but by fruit. And if you don't understand that, you get confused in the parable. So we're going to meet four kinds of hearers, four kinds of, of responders to the gospel. And they're just as characteristic of our day as they were when Jesus gave this parable. So these are truths that we're going to be able to identify with. Jesus tells them about four basic types of hearers they could expect to encounter. The unresponsive, the superficial, the worldly, and the receptive. Let's begin with the unresponsive hearer. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. Back in verse 4, we were told that some of the seed fell on the hard-packed dirt along the side of the road and it couldn't penetrate the hard surface. And the birds hovered around, waited till the man's back was turned, came down, hit the surface, and ate the seed. And what the birds didn't eat, Luke's account says, was trampled underfoot. 
Now, what is this? This is the person who's half-hearted. In the Old Testament, the term for this kind of person was stiff-necked. Uh, it's the person who is unresponsive, unattentive, unconcerned, indifferent, negligent, doesn't want anything to do with it. It just hits him and bounces off. And the birds of verse 4 are representatives of Satan, referred to here as the evil one, uh, who comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. In other words, there's a condition of the human heart that has been so pounded and pounded and pounded upon by sin in this, his life, and his pride is so great that there's no sensitivity at all. Uh, this is the heart that knows no repentance, knows no sorrow for sin, knows no guilt, knows no concern over things that really matter, but just allows itself to be trampled and trampled and trampled with constant sin and the rejection of anything that smacks of spirituality until that soil of his heart has become pounded down, never broken up, never softened by conviction. It's callous and indifferent. I believe this person can best be seen in the fool of Proverbs. Uh, the fool who hates knowledge, the fool who hates instruction, the fool who despises wisdom, the fool who's stiff-necked and hard-headed, uh, hard-hearted, who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1. This is the fool who will not hear, whose mind is shut, who doesn't want to be bothered at all, who slams the door in your face, whether actually or figuratively, and says, leave me alone. <coughs> We've all met that kind of person, haven't we? I mean, you've thrown your seed, it just bounces. Uh, nothing at all, no penetration, and it doesn't stay there very long until Satan comes in and takes it away. This is the same as what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.4 when speaking of Satan. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, when someone does not respond to the gospel initially, when they're hard-hearted hard and stiff-necked, Satan just snatches it away. He just blinds them to its true value. How does he do that? Well, there's lots of ways. Uh, one way he does is by sending false teachers along to change and twist and distort the gospel message so that it says something that the individual agrees with, but isn't really the true gospel. Another way he snatches the seed is by the fear of others. People don't respond to it because they're afraid they might be ostracized by their family or lose their reputation, thought to be a fool, or they might be kicked out of some group of friends or associates they value. Sometimes Satan uses pride. The person is arrogant, thinking they know better than this religious fanatic who's sharing these things about Jesus Christ with them. <coughs> and besides that, they're convinced they aren't a sinner like they're being told they are. I just had someone tell me that within the past few weeks. Uh, we have a, uh, they have a relative who denies that she's a sinner. I once had a lady tell me she wasn't a sinner, that she hadn't sinned that day. She, uh, she said, all I've done today is walk the dog and mow the grass. I haven't sinned at all. Th that's just self-righteous pride. And sometimes Satan snatches it away through doubt or through prejudice or through stubbornness. They think that if they have a problem in their life, they can fix it on their own. They don't need Jesus to start messing around with their life. Sometimes Satan does it through the love of some particular sin. The person doesn't want to give up. Sometimes it's through procrastination. 
But one way or another, <coughs> or in a combination of ways, when it hits that hard stuff, Satan snatches it away and the person so easily forgets that it ever came. There are many people like that. And so we should expect to encounter some people like that. Jesus says there are people with hard hearts out there who will reject you, anything you say about Christ. So expect it. And then next, uh, just a second here. My, but we must never give up on that. We don't give up. I didn't say that. <laughs> we don't know their hearts. Okay, let me, uh, we're going to stop here. Uh, because the second one is the superficial hearer. The superficial hearer is the next one, but we're stopping. We're not going to consider them this week. And we're stopping, and you're not going to get to hear the rest of this parable for the next, it'll be four weeks from now, because I'm gone for the next three weeks. So a month from now, a month from now, we'll go finish these. Okay? So, you'll, by then you will have forgotten everything Steve said, and I'll, I'll be in the clear. Okay? You can start all over. I can start right back over with this and say everything I've just said about this guy, and you probably go, oh, this is new. And write it down. Yes? I was on a job once, and... Uh, my particular thing I had to do was, uh, it was a couple acres, and I had to get it smooth and put grass seed in. And I put about 600 pounds of grass seed on that small area. And there was not a single bird anywhere. And within an hour, there was 10 billion of them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing that amazed me was you could walk all over that whole thing and you couldn't find a single seed. The only way I've managed to make it is seed it again and cover it up, drag it all in. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, it's an application to this yep. thing here. He, he does a complete job when he does Yep, that. he does. Amen. All right. Well, let's uh, close with prayer and go our, off to the next service.